Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everybody. This is Terry from Texas, and I've got a new story for you, or not a new story, but a recap of an older story. Uh, New information has come to light. But first, I want to talk to you about last week's show. I was talking about a story where a family found a lot of dead animals in their house when they went to re-insulate the house. Uh, They tore out the walls and found a bunch of dead animal corpses. Well, as I was recording that, I, I had just finished one story and was leading into this story. And when I was playing it back to check the the recording, I heard something that I want to play for you and see if you hear it also. When it came time for a certain family, did you hear anything in that? I was surprised when I heard it because I couldn't identify what it was. It's not me. Let me play it for you again, see if you hear it. When it came time for a certain family, if you can identify the sound or if you hear the sound, let me know at Terry's Mysterious Moments on Facebook and just tell me what you hear, okay? Now, let's get on with the with today's show, which I said is a recap of an old story that has some new information come to light or new investigation into the story. The Temam Shud case, also known as the mystery of the Somerton Man, is an unsolved case of an unidentified man found dead in 1948 on the Somerton Park Beach just south of Adelaide, South Australia, in Australia. The case is named after the Persian phrase Tamam Shud, meaning ended or finished, which was printed on a scrap of paper found months after the body was discovered in the pocket of the man's trousers. It's called the fob pocket. I guess it's where your your watch fob would go 
sometimes we'll call them change pockets, I guess. The scrap had been torn from the final page of a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which was authored by 12th century poet Omar Khayyam. Tamam was misspelled as Taman in many early reports, and this error has often been repeated, leading to confusion about the name in the media. Following an appeal from the police, the book from which the page has been torn was located. On the inside back cover, detectives were able to read through indentations left from previous handwriting, a local phone number, another unidentified number, and text that resembled an encrypted message. The text has not been deciphered or interpreted in any way that satisfies authorities on the case. The case has been considered since the early stages of the investigation, quote, one of Australia's most profound mysteries, unquote. There has been an intense speculation ever since regarding the identity of the victim, the cause of his death, and the events leading up to it. Public interest in the case remains significant for several reasons. The death occurred at a time of heightened international tensions following the beginning of the Cold War, the apparent involvement of a secret code, the possible use of an undetectable poison, and the inability of authorities to identify the dead man. In addition to intense public scrutiny in Australia during the late 1940s and early 50s, the Tamam Shud case also attracted international attention. South Australian police consulted their counterparts overseas and distributed information about the dead man internationally in an effort to identify him. International circulation of a photograph of the man and details of his fingerprints yielded no positive identification. For example, in the United States, the FBI was unable to match the dead man's fingerprints with prints taken from files of domestic criminals. Scotland Yard was also asked to assist, but could not offer any insights. In recent years, new evidence has emerged including an old identification card possibly identifying the Somerton man as one H.C. Reynolds and an ongoing DNA analysis of hair roots found on a plaster bust made of him after death. On May 19th of 2021, the remains of the Somerton man were exhumed. Police stated that the remains were in reasonable condition and were optimistic about the prospect of DNA recovery. The remains were deeper in the ground than previously thought, though. The original discovery of the body happened on the 1st of December of 1948. At 6.30 a.m., the police were contacted after the body of a man was discovered on Somerton Park Beach near Glenelg, about 6.8 miles southwest of Adelaide, South Australia. The man was found lying in the sand across from the crippled children's home, which was on the corner of the Esplanade and Bickford Terrace. He was lying back with his head resting against the seawall, with his legs extended and his feet crossed. 
It was believed the man had died while sleeping. An unlit cigarette was on the right collar of his coat. A search of his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that may not have been used, a U.S.-manufactured narrow aluminum comb, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, an Army Club cigarette packet which contained seven cigarettes of a different brand called Conceitas, and a quarter box of Bryant and May matches. Witnesses who came forward said that on the evening of November 30th, they had seen an individual resembling the dead man lying on his back in the same spot and position near the crippled children's home where the corpse was later found. A couple who saw him around 7 p.m. noted that they saw him extend his right arm to its fullest extent and then drop it limply. Another couple who saw him from 7.30 p.m. to 8 p.m., during which time the streetlights had come on, recounted that they did not see him move during the half an hour in which he was in view, although they did have the impression that his position had changed. Although they commented between themselves that it was odd he was not reacting to the mosquitoes, they had thought it more likely that he was drunk or asleep and thus did not investigate further. One of the witnesses told the police she observed a man looking down at the sleeping man from the top of the steps that led to the beach. Witnesses said the body was in the same position when the police viewed it. Another witness came forward in 1959 and reported to the police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. A police report was made by Detective Don O'Doherty. According to the pathologist, one John Burton Cleland, the man was of Britisher appearance and thought to be aged about 40 to 45. He was in top physical condition excluding the fact that he was dead. He was 5 feet 11 inches tall with gray eyes, fair to ginger colored hair, light, slightly gray around the temples, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed shoes and pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet. He was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, brown trousers, a brown knitted pullover, and fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket of reportedly American tailoring, socks, and shoes. All labels on his clothes had been removed and he had no hat which was unusual for 1948, or a wallet. He was clean-shaven and carried no identification, which led police to believe he had committed suicide. Finally, his dental records were not able to be matched to any known person. An autopsy was conducted, and the pathologist estimated the time of death to be around 2 a.m. on December 1st. 
The heart was of normal size and normal in every way. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. There was congestion of the pharynx and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum. There was blood mixed with the food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times normal size. There was destruction of the center of the liver lobules revealed under the microscope. Acute gastritis hemorrhage. Extensive congestion of the liver and spleen and the congestion in the brain. The autopsy showed that the man's last meal was a pasty, eaten three to four hours before death, but tests failed to reveal any foreign substance in the body. The pathologist, Dr. Dwyer, concluded, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. Although poisoning remained a prime suspicion, the pasty was not believed to be the source of the poison. Other than that, the coroner was unable to reach a conclusion as to the man's identity, cause of death, or whether the man seen alive at Somerton Beach on the evening of November 30th was the same man, as nobody had seen his face at that time. The body was then embalmed on December 10th of 1948 after the police were unable to get a positive identification. The police said this was the first time they knew that such action was needed. On January 14th of 1949, Staff at the Adelaide Railway Station discovered a brown suitcase with its label removed, which had been checked into the station cloakroom about 11 a.m. on November 30, 1948. It was believed the suitcase was owned by the man found on the beach. In the case were a red-checked dressing gown, a size 7 red felt pair of slippers, four pairs of underpants, pajamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, and a stenciling brush as used by third officers on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. Also in the suitcase was a thread card of Barber brand orange waxed thread of quote an unusual type unquote not available in Australia. It was the same that was used to repair the lining of a pocket of the trousers the dead man was wearing. All identification marks on the clothes had been removed but police found the name T. Keane K-E-A-N-E -E, on a tie Keen on a laundry bag and Keen without the second E on a singlet along with three dry cleaning marks. Police believe that whoever removed the clothing tags either overlooked these three items or purposely left the Keen tags on the clothes knowing that Keen was not the dead man's name. With wartime rationing still enforced, clothing was difficult to acquire at that time. What was unusual was that there were no spare socks found in the case, 
and no correspondence, although the police found pencils and unused stationery. A search concluded that there was no T. Keene missing in any English-speaking country, and a nationwide circulation of the dry cleaning marks also proved fruitless. In fact, all that could be garnered from the suitcase was that the front gusset and leather stitching on a coat found in the case indicated it had been manufactured in the United States. The coat had not been imported, indicating the man had been to the U.S. or bought the coat from someone of similar size who had been. Police checked incoming train records and believed the man had arrived at the Adelaide Railway Station by overnight train from either Melbourne, Sydney, or Port Augusta. They speculated he had showered and shaved at the adjacent city baths, but there was no ticket on his body to the baths, before returning to the train station to purchase a ticket for the 10.50 a.m. train to Henley Beach, which, for whatever reason, he missed. He immediately checked his suitcase at the station cloakroom before leaving the station and catching a city bus to Glen Elg. Although named City Baths, the center was not a public bathing facility, but rather a public swimming pool. The railway station bathing facilities were adjacent to the station cloakroom, which itself was adjacent to the station's southern exit onto North Terrace. The City Baths on King William Street were accessed from the station's northern exit via a laneway. There's no record of the station's bathroom facilities being unavailable on the day he arrived. An inquest into the man's death, conducted by Coroner Cleland, commenced a few days following the discovery of the body, but was adjourned until June 17, 1949. Cleland, as an investigating pathologist, re-examined the body and made a number of discoveries. He noted that the man's shoes were remarkably clean and appeared to have been recently polished, rather than in the condition expected of a man who had apparently been wandering around Glenelg all day. He added that this evidence fit in with the theory that the body may have been brought to Somerton Park Beach after the man's death, accounting for the lack of evidence of vomiting and convulsions, which are the two main physiological reactions to poison. Cleland speculated that as none of the witnesses could positively identify the man they saw the previous night as being the same person discovered the next morning, there remained the possibility the man had died elsewhere and had been dumped. He stressed this was purely speculation as all the witnesses believed it was definitely the same person as the body was in the same place and lying in the same distinctive position. He also found there was no evidence as to who the deceased was. Cedric Stanton Hicks, professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, testified that a group of drugs, variants of a drug that in that group he called number one, and in particular number two, were extremely toxic in a relatively small oral dose that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to identify even if it had been suspected in the first instance. He gave Cleland a piece of paper with the names of the two drugs, which was entered as Exhibit C-18. The names were not released to the public until the 1980s, as, at the time, they were quite easily procurable by the ordinary individual. 
from a chemist without the need to give a reason for the purchase. The drugs were later publicly identified as Digitalis and Uabane, both of which are cardinalide-type cardiac glycosides. Hicks noted the only fact not found in relation to the body was evidence of vomiting. He then stated its absence was not unknown, but that he could not make a frank conclusion without it. Hicks stated that if death occurred seven hours after the man was last seen to move, it would imply a massive dose that could still have been undetectable. It was noted that the movement seen by witnesses at 7 p.m. could have been the last convulsion preceding death. Early in the inquiry, Cleland stated, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside and that it was not accidentally administered but I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person. Despite these findings, he could not determine the cause of death of the unidentified man. Cleland remarked that if the body had been carried to its final resting place, then all the difficulties would disappear. After the inquest, a plaster cast was made of the man's head and shoulders. The lack of success in determining the identity and cause of death of the man had led authorities to call it an unparalleled mystery and believe that the cause of death might never be known. When police found the book that the phrase Tamam Shud was cut from, they also found writing in the back of it that proved not very good information regarding the case. There was a telephone number in there that belonged to a lady who was a nurse, but who said she didn't know the man, didn't know anything about the man, didn't know anything about the case, and then requested that the police leave her out of any reports. Because she was a nurse, she said it would be harmful to her reputation and her business reputation. The police agreed, no problem. Information gathered in the intervening years still proved to be nothing. It was a great mystery that they worked on for years and still found nothing. Well, up comes a few days ago and they decided to disinter the body so they could check the DNA. The number of possible identifications having been made and most of them dismissed because many of them were just a mistaken identity and many of those IDs having proved they were not the dead man and the others having proven that they were elsewhere, although they were no longer alive. So the question is, will this newest round of testing finally identify this poor unknown individual? One can only hope, and it may give him some peace. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from 
the witching hour, and Aaron has instituted a new area called entertaining short films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.